Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 71. So today is going to be an awesome episode. I'm interviewing Tim Mercer. Now, I've spoken about him before on, a, on the last few episodes that I'll be doing this interview, and I have spoken about it on my Instagram as well, and a lot of the questions that I got you listeners to ask have been included in this interview. So basically, a little bit about Tim. Tim is a scientist at the University of Queensland, but he's actually based out of Mexico City at the moment and uh, for the last couple of years. He's uh, an expert in genomics and synthetic biology. And in addition to all of that, he works on developing mRNA vaccines and mRNA therapies, and he really understands like the biology of the virus as well. So I thought he'd be the perfect person to ask all these questions that's kind of like floating around just on the news, the internet, in our minds, everything about the vaccine, comparing mRNA vaccines. So for example, like the Pfizer vaccine with an adenovirus vaccine, such as the AstraZeneca. So you're going to hear all sorts of amazing pieces of information. Um, They're pretty much all questions from you guys. I put out the call out a few weeks ago on my Instagram, um, put a little question box up there and, you know, asked what you guys would like to hear. And I've pretty much compiled the most common questions. There were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of questions that came through, but these are the most common and I've kind of like grouped them together. So I really hope that you enjoy the next hour or so of my interview with Tim Mercer. All right, so welcome, Tim. I've just introduced you to the audience, and we're really excited to have you on the show. So firstly, hello, how are you? Very well, thank you, and thanks for the uh, invite to join you. Of course. So basically, Tim's actually, I'll get you to introduce yourself properly, but he's currently in Mexico City recording this, so we're also going to get a bit of an insight into what it's like from living in a different country versus because most of the listeners are here in Australia. Um, yeah, we'd love to hear what it's like being in Mexico, kind of, you know, living with the virus, how it's, you know, people have adapted to it over there as well. And um, yeah, seeing it from someone else's perspective, as well as everything that you specialize in. So to start with, Tim, give us a bit of a history on how you got to where you are, what you're currently doing right now. Um, yeah, thanks, Times Alexis. So, um, so I'm a, a scientist first and foremost. So, I've, my sort of research interest has been in genomics, um, understanding how the genome works, what genes are, and how they're encoded. Um, you know, this sort of the RNA and the DNA of life. Um, but obviously, now in the last sort of one and a half years, my sort of research interest in genomics has become pretty much front and center in terms of um, obviously with the with the virus and the pandemic and the spread of this. 30,000 nucleotide RNA genome that's spread around the world and has pretty much disrupted everything we, um, we do. <laughs> so my back, yeah, so that's been my research. Um, and so in the last sort of one and a half years, there's been a lot of focus in terms of, I guess, understanding the biology of the, um, SARS-CoV-2. Uh, my particular, probably my biggest speciality is more in the testing, the diagnostic testing, the testing of like the population scale testing that's going, been going on trying to detect where the virus is, how it transmits, contact tracing, um, genome ep- epidemiology. Um, but also now, I think as we're transitioning, as the sort of the pandemic is, in a sense is maturing, there's also a much greater interest from the, the perspective of the sort of the vaccinations, what the post-vaccination world is going to look like, um, people's immune protections and responses to the virus, and also the response of the virus to that in terms of how it continues to evolve as well. 
Amazing. So I can't wait to get into all of that because exactly that, I think what a lot of people are interested in is kind of the future of it as well and how people are going to adapt and how immunity happens, you know, and if it's with having gotten the virus or gotten the vaccine. So we'll go into all of that as well. But um, so, okay, I did get a lot of questions from my audience. They just like sent through a whole bunch of questions. So I thought we'll start with, and you kind of helped me actually like structure it in a more like ordered way. So thank you. But um, I think the first question that I'd like to get into is the immunity side of things. So it's with the whole how do vaccines work and how does immunity from the injection compare to immunity from having gotten COVID? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, it's definitely a good place to start because obviously if we understanding how the vaccines work, how the immune response, how the immune system responds to the virus and the vaccines essentially starts to allow you to understand, you know, what different types of vaccines are what, and sort of almost like start predicting what the future will be as well. Mm. So, I mean, look, with a vaccine, what it essentially is, is it, you mentioned what's the difference between sort of a being vaccinated and actually getting the virus. In a sense, they're very similar things. So what you're doing is a vaccine is almost trying to train yourself, um, train your immune system uh, to recognize and respond to the virus as if you've already had it before. And so what we all have inside of us is this adaptive immune system. And what it does is, you know, when it's uh, when you catch a virus, it learns to recognize that virus and then it essentially gets trained. So in future, it can respond much more faster, much more specifically and much more effectively to destroy the virus. Now, that's all good and well, if, and that sort of happens like the second or third time you've got the virus, but that first time you get the virus, it still needs to learn and be trained. And so a vaccine essentially is trying to almost train your body using in an, almost like an in, in, inactivated virus. Mm -hmm. So almost training your, uh, training your body to respond to the virus without actually exposing you to the virus. And the way they do that is essentially by putting small pieces of the virus, small parts of the protein, um, into your body so your immune system learns to recognize those proteins, those smaller pieces. And then that means that when it sees the entire whole virus, it'll be trained. Um, so that's kind of a, at a broad level. Mm -hmm. What I'll do is, I mean, I can go into a little bit more of a specific level, you know, start like getting into the weeds, if you will. Yeah, um, just to give you a love that. Because it is, the immune system is crazy complicated. You know, you, I know you work a lot on the brain, like in terms of organs of the body that are complicated. I mean, the brain's up there, but I'll say <laughs> the immune system in sheer complexity and sophistication is up there as well. Amazing. Um, and so we, and we, and we don't understand a lot of it, but essentially what happens is when you get a vaccine. So at the moment, you probably appreciate this. Um, there's kind of two types of major vaccines that have been approved for use out there. So, in the, the news and the media, you might have heard about the mRNA vaccines. These are the ones like the Pfizer, the yeah. Moderna vaccines. But then you've also got the sort of the adenovirus-based um, vaccines. So these are the AstraZeneca, the Johnson & Johnson, um, Sputnik, uh, Sinovac. These are the sort of, I guess, the more conventional platform. What they do is, starting with the adenovirus, is what it is, it's, it's essentially a small piece of DNA. It's a small DNA plasmid. The way you do is you're injecting it into your, um, injecting it into you, and what it does is it, essentially gets injected into a vaccinated cell. And that bit of DNA is then transcribed into RNA mm -hmm. and then translated into protein. And the protein that it encodes is the spike protein. So this is the protein that's on the outside of the coronavirus. This is the protein which actually, you know, when the coronavirus tries to infect you, that's the protein which finds its target, binds onto its target, 
and allows the coronavirus entry into the cell. And so what the vaccine does is it encodes the same protein, but what it means is there's no virus associated with it. But what it's doing is that vaccinated cell starts to express the, um, the spike protein. Right. right. Now, that vaccinated cell, what it starts to realize is it shouldn't be doing it. It feels like it's sick. And what happens is the immune system quickly recognizes that the spike proteins that are being expressed by that cell are foreign. Mm -hmm. And it learns to basically target that and recognize it as a virus. So it, it says, right, now whenever we come across this spike protein, which had been encoded by this vaccine, we know that this is bad. And if we ever see it, we're going to attack it. Um, now, the mRNA vaccines I mentioned earlier, they work in the same way, the same concept. But rather than being DNA, which needs to get transcribed and then translated, they're just RNA. So they just need to be translated into the protein. Um, they work in very much a similar way. Um, but I guess the, the, the sort of the advantages and disadvantages, the advantages are that the, the mRNA vaccines do seem to be very, um, very effective, um, impressively effective. This was probably the first time when they really were tested at such a massive scale where the sort of the potential of them was tested. And they did, um, they seem to have passed in, with pretty flying colors. Mm. Um, but essentially, they're, what they're both doing is they're training that, they're basically allowing that vaccinated cell to express that spike protein to train the immune system. And so what happens is the T cells will come in. So the T cells are like, if you think of your immune system, there's kind of like two types of soldier cells. There's the T cells and the B cells. Mm -hmm. The T cells come in, they recognize that spike protein. And then any, any cell or any um, time they see that spike protein from now on, they'll start to um, detect and attack it. There is another class of cell. I said it was complicated, a bit like yeah, the brain. Yeah, no, I'm loving it. Keep going. <laughs> There's another class of cell, the, the B cells. And what they do is they're kind of almost like your second line of defense. When they see the T cells attacking the spike protein, what they do is they go in and they try and generate antibodies that recognize that um, spike protein. And then what they do is they are almost like your long-term memory when it comes to your immune system. So what they do is they'll then reside there. They'll produce these antibodies against the spike protein. And it means that um, essentially these antibodies are circulating within the system. And if they ever come across the spike protein, they bind to it. They activate the immune system. But physically, they also, because they bind to it, they almost stop the spike protein from going and binding cells. So they call to that neutralizing antibodies. Yeah, they, they actually also just physically stop it doing its job. Right. And that's essentially how you've trained your immune system to... Um, so, uh, to I have yourself. a question. Why do you think that society... Well, I, I can speak for only Australia, but why do you think that people are so resistant to the concept of the mRNA vaccine, but not as resistant to the concept of just, you know, the more traditional vaccine, like, a, like yeah, the, the, the AstraZeneca? Yeah, yeah, well, I think as much of it is to do with sort of like messaging. I mean, the yeah. reality is so the um, the uh, the adenovirus vaccine platform is super well established. You know, at the outset of the pandemic, this is what a huge amount of our vaccines have been built upon. Um, so it's very well established. It's sort of safety profiles, its performance is pretty well established um, and its effectiveness is well established as well. I think, though, I mean, the mRNA vaccines, they can be produced very rapidly. Um, they have a couple of advantages. They can produce very rapidly. They can also be reprogrammed. In a sense, you can reprogram for the new variants um, quite well as well. So I think they have those with the sort of the advantages. Yes. There have been, obviously, as well, like, um, so, you know, we've been, 
in terms of producing vaccines, it's happened very fast. And so the, the, in terms of doing these massive clinical studies, you start to appreciate what the safety profiles for them are. The mRNA vaccines are very, very safe. At the moment, there hasn't been, there's, there's been like very um, few uh, sort of, I guess, reported side effects. Um, and obviously with the adenovirus vaccines, they also have an excellent safety profile, but there are um, some side effects in terms of, um, I guess, uh, blood clots in um, a certain fraction of the population as well. Okay. And when it comes to, so a lot of people just instantly think this is going to alter my DNA. You know, they think they hear mRNA, they hear DNA, and they think, okay, this is now permanent during my DNA. Why? What's kind of, what do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's just not true. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't affect your DNA. It doesn't integrate into your DNA. It doesn't get involved. It doesn't cause these, um, it it essentially doesn't do do any of those things. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, as a scientist, usually you have to sort of, you know, capture your terms, be pretty, but in this one, I can just, I can, I'm happy to confidently say, no, there is no, uh, there's no interaction. There's no involvement. With either Um, of them. With either of them. Yeah. yeah. And so, look, I mean, there's viruses, so you probably appreciate things like, um, there's some, some viruses, so Epstein-Barr viruses, herpes and so forth, they'll actually insert themselves into your genome. So these are DNA viruses, but SARS-CoV-2, it's an RNA virus. So it never inserts itself into your genome. It never leaves that sort of permanent um, scar, like it never leaves a permanent sort of sequence within your genome. Um, once you sort of clear that infection, the RNA, it's RNA-based, so it doesn't integrate within you. It is another right. side point, having said that. I, like I said, I, I am a genomicist. So about 30%, I mean, sorry, about 50% of your genome does actually derive from ancient viral um, insertions. So if ah. you look at your own genome, about half of your DNA actually derives from um, ancient viruses. And so really? the, the genes that essentially allow your placenta to develop is based on a viral gene. It's a viral. In fact, Amazing. the adaptive immune system, the same system which is now protecting you against viruses, actually was originally evolved from a virus that was domesticated in fish about 500 million years ago. Wow. So the basis of our immune system is based on in viruses from 500 million years ago. And what we do is we've actually taken them in and domesticated them within our own genome. That's incredible. So when it comes to something like the, the COVID virus, what, what we're experiencing right now, when you take a vaccination, how long, you know, people talk about side effects in, in years to come, but how long would that time be where, where you could experience a side effect? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a, it's a hard one to say. And the reason I say this is because at the moment, um, I mean, the clinical studies, they started about a year ago, and that's kind of almost like the furthest data point that we have out. Um, mm-hmm. And so at the moment, I mean, there's been no long-term, um, there's been no long-term reported consequences, so no long-term side effects um, uh, reported. Uh, at the um, at the moment, I mean, I know typically, I mean, some of you people who have been vaccinated might have sort of, you, you can have like very short term, you know, after a day or two, you feel a bit groggy almost. And that's actually, it's interesting because that's actually what your immune system is doing because it thinks it's fighting off a, um, a virus. So that these are the responses. This is your body's response. It's not even the yes. virus is infecting you. That's what you feel like when your body responds to a virus. Yeah, because um, so, I had the AstraZeneca last week and I was like dying for about 24 hours and then I was fine. 
Yeah, and so that's your own immune system. Just like you know, it's it's trying Amazing. to make it the, your your um your body as uh, inhospitable to the virus as possible. Right. Um. But yeah, I mean, in terms of so in the literature, there's no like the long term side effects. There's no um no known uh, side effects like long term. Um, there's also been you know a fair bit of concern about things like fertility, these sorts of things. Yes. And there's also like again, there's no. For things like that, there's no reported, but even like no reported examples where it's a, it's affected fertility, um, and there's almost like no mechanism as a scientist where I can think of <laughs> in which the vaccination can also impact your fertility as well. So I think again, that's one of the ones where I'd say no, there is no no problem in that. There's respect. no right, and does that also go for um, women that are pregnant getting vaccinated as well? Uh, yeah, so they've done so they've doing clinical trials and studies at the moment. My understanding is that even if you're pregnant, you should get vaccinated. Yes. So if you go on the WHO website, that's one of the things is they definitely have like all of this or like all of the um, requirements or the most up to date information. They do yeah. say all of this sort of stuff. Now, my understanding is pregnancy. It's, it's certainly not a um, a concern for the the baby and so forth. But the only thing is where they've done. So a lot of the time, you'll start to see that whether they've done the sort of the clinical trials in that particular target population to confirm it's safe. So right. as, you, as you might appreciate, you know, each vaccine, it gets developed and then it goes into clinical trials. Um, and that's where you essentially do a sort of a structured trial to understand what are the side effects? Are there any complications? What the, what's the effectiveness? And they'll, they'll do that at different sort of segments of the population. So you probably appreciate now the reason it's authorised for um, above people above 18 years old or above 16 years old, and now we're moving to like 12 years old, mm. is that those clinical trials have been completed for those parts of the population. Right. Um, and so they started with the they started with the sort of the older um, older people because that was the uh, the people who were most vulnerable from COVID hospitalisation um, and mortality. So they are now doing the. Um, uh, vaccination trials for two years and older now. Um, and so that'll kind of, hopefully that'll kind of be, the results from that will be complete by the end of the year. And if all things go well, um, uh, you know, then they'll be sort of authorised. I think in the long term, I mean, as you probably appreciate as well, I mean, you probably, when you're a baby, you have many vaccinations. It's found to be safe and effective. They will be also authorised for those uses as well. So one thing, talking about clinical trials and everything like that, one question that you hear everywhere and people arguing it, um, especially from a lot of obviously non-scientists, is how quickly the vaccine got rolled out. And obviously I think that obviously given the scale of it, I would imagine that it was expedited a lot faster because of the resources that were available, I would imagine. But why is it that the COVID vaccine, all of them, were able to hit the market so much faster than how long a normal, any other medication would take to be produced? Yeah, I mean, look, the answer is just the sheer amount of hard work and investment and attention that it got, you know. So this was, it was done as fast as possible. So I think within, for example, the Moderna vaccine, I think that was developed within six weeks. Wow. And, and most of the time, most of the, so the majority of that time when it takes, which it took to get from like sort of development until um, it was authorised is essentially mostly the clinical trial. And that's why the mRNA vaccines are thought to be quite helpful because they can be reprogrammed and developed so rapidly. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the clinical trials, I mean, I think collectively there's about 100,000 people um, to date who have been involved in clinical trials worldwide. So they're a massive, they are a massive undertaking. 
There are a huge amount of arms. Yeah. So particularly that phase three, you're talking like tens of thousands of people involved in each clinical trial. So there are a huge amount of work. And then what you have to do is you have to basically follow once the person gets um, gets their vac um, vaccination, each of the sort of participant, you have to follow them in terms of their health, in terms of whether they um, contract COVID, what their responses are and so forth. And so that's probably, that's like the bulk of the amount of work is involved with that particular clinical trial. But it, it, it is essentially though, there was just so much attention, obviously the impact and the um, the importance of it was so great that essentially it was, a, it was literally a 24 um, seven yes. uh, uh, undertaking. I mean, I know when, at the beginning of it, um, when Moderna first came, like when it first um, happened, Moderna put um, the adverts out into the job market um, and it was, they were doing like, it was literally a, like a eight hour, three, eight hour shifts wow. um, per day. And so the, the, essentially the factories and the laboratories weren't shutting down overlapping shifts. Yeah. Just to keep the, just to keep it. Cause I remember when, when yeah. even with, you know, with neuroscience and when we were studying the, the whole concept of drug design, a lot of the things that take so much time is getting the participants participants getting the funding getting the approval and that's something that you probably given that it's a pandemic and the participants are just there it's probably something mm -hmm. that wouldn't have taken that time at all to recruit or to even get the funding so that already mm -hmm. would have cut it down dramatically because i think people think that what takes 10 years is these trials that go on forever but it's a lot of it isn't that's not what takes that much time for a lot of it. I feel that it is getting the funding, getting the participants, getting the places that are going to be involved or the, or the clinics and all of that. Yeah. And look, I would also say in my experience, this is probably the first time where I've just seen, you know, both the, the public, um, the public organizations. So the regulators are like FDA, the WHO, these sorts of groups. Um, and also the, on the private side of things, the clinical laboratories and so forth. There really was a huge amount of sort of cooperation and coordination at the very beginning. Like it was, yeah. it was quite impressive in terms of, you know, in sort of, I guess, normal times, there's a lot of, um, well, there was really a kind of a, a motivation or a sense of everyone working together, sort of leave the ego at the door, get into yeah. work and like, you know, let's like team together for the common good. Um, and it was quite impressive. And that, that was the case across vaccinations but also across the research side of things and also the testing as well. Amazing. Um, there was certainly a really close coordination with sort of industrial, academic, and also the um, the government organisations as well. Yeah, and that's obviously what would have saved a lot of time, I would imagine. Yeah, 100%. I mean, look, I was looking at the numbers. I mean, I think we've got the 16 vaccines, which have been like kind of have some sort of approval in 18 months, but there's actually about another 100 which are undergoing clinical trials at the moment as well. So wow. certainly the, um, you know, the ones that have kind of been approved and they're out, out there is kind of at the leading edge of um, there's many more coming as well. Amazing. Okay. So talking about that, how long does the vaccine, how, how long is it effective for and when would people need to be getting like a booster shot? Yeah. So, I mean, look, this is a very sort of topical question at the moment, um, particularly, I mean, I, I don't know if you've seen like in the States and so forth, where um, some of the countries, so places like Israel, the States, which had a really high sort of uh, a lot of vaccination um, and they've sort of been around for th that sort of progress has been, they've been sort of vaccinating the population for almost like since December last year. What they're sort of doing is they tend to measure like actually the immune response of the population. So they'll do these what we call serology tests, which are what they essentially do is they'll take the blood of a patient and they'll 
test to see how strong their immune response is. Um, now, some of the companies, so Pfizer and Moderna, are starting to say that they do start to see a bit of a waning of that immune response. And you, you might have remembered, at the beginning I kind of mentioned, you know, it's almost like this memory in your immune system. It's just like the memories in the brain in terms of over time they start to fade. And yeah. so having a booster shot, sort of, I guess, retraining your, um, uh, your immune system, it kind of gives it a memory jolt and it makes it stronger as well. Um, so, look, at the moment, and that's also one of the reasons why you actually typically have two shots rather than one, because it's much more right. effective to kind of train, train, your, yeah, train your body twice in short succession than it is just to do it once, because your, your immune system kind of on the second shot realizes, all right, this is a virus which I'm going to be exposed to more times in the future. So it elicits a stronger response. Right, um, yes. So what, what, what they're finding now is they are starting to see a sort of a, um, a bit of a waning of the immune response. Um, and typically what they'll start to suggest, there's a couple of reasons for this. This is naturally your immune system. The memory starts to fade. And that's also not just dependent on the vaccine you've got, but your, yourself as well, your lifestyle, your genetics, all those sorts of features. Also in terms of the virus, it evolves. So the virus can change, and what that can mean is that the virus becomes um, sort of more difficult to recognise. And so what they're starting to do is they're starting to put the... Some of the companies are starting to now say that we should start thinking about booster shots, I think probably towards the end of the year. And, and I'm say, saying this from an international sense, because I think Australia's... You know, each country is almost a little bit on its different timeline, so when it decides when the booster shots, if and when they should be done, is obviously dependent upon when they started. Um, but you'll start to see places like Israel and um, the United States are discussing the, um, the use of booster shots um, soon. Right, yeah. And how effective would it be to different variants of the virus? Because obviously we're always seeing like a, another one crop up, another one crop up. Would that vaccine still be to an extent effective against a new variant? Um, yes. I mean, so essentially the vaccines are, and it, the thing is, it's not like a black and white. It's almost like because your immune system is trained to a virus and then the virus changes, changes a little bit, your immune system is still effective against it, but it's not as good, if, yeah. if that makes sense. Totally. So it's a bit of a sort of a, I guess, a quantitative um, phenomenon like that. And so in the case of new variants, so as, as you probably appreciate, there's a lot of news, um, there's a lot of sort of um, coverage of the Delta variant at the moment because mm. it's become it's sort of become the sort of the dominant strain. And with the current um, with the current vaccines, when they've like basically done the studies, they're finding that yes, it's effective against things like hospitalisation um, and death in particular. So the really sort of the strong symptoms of COVID. So what it does is it kind of reduces the impact, particularly the sort of the pathological impact of the virus. But it doesn't mean that you can't get um, infected. So they are finding that people who have been vaccinated can get infected and can transmit it as well. Yes. It is less than if you're, if you yeah, it is less than if you're um, uh, vaccinated, but it's not it's not nothing. So they are starting to find now that so that's why there's still that sort of recommendation that you sort of like still you know follow those sort of best practices when it comes to face masks and so forth, even if you're vaccinated. But the idea is you're um, you're going to be you're going to have a sort of a lower viral titer, you're going to be less infectious, and you're certainly going to have less chance of being hospitalised um, and, and suffering worse consequences. You are still going to have a lot of protection, but it's not going to be that, you know, the same, like, um, really high levels of yeah. performance or the original strain. So if we're talking about the original strain, for example, and you get the, you get the vaccine, of course you can still contract the virus, 
but you just fight it off mm-hmm. a lot faster and you might not feel any symptoms. How Do you know how yeah. long you are then transmissible when vaccinated? Because I would imagine it's a lot mm-hmm. shorter time frame. So the, I think the reality is if, you got, if you're vaccinated, you're infectious. So in terms of infecting other people, transmitting it, you're, infe- you're less infectious and for a much shorter time window as well. Right. So if you, if you can kind of, and look, to, if you consider like a baseline, I mean, typically what happens, and this is with the, um, this is kind of with the original wild type strain, typically when you, if you contracted the virus within sort of, I think about three to four days, you would start to become infectious. You might also become symptomatic. Um, it might be quite mild or it might be quite severe or you could be asymptomatic. And then I think you are essentially um, infectious for about three to four days um, and then it would start to um, dissipate. Now, with something, when you've got vaccinated, you know, that time frame will be much shorter and mm-hmm. it will be, the amount of actual viral particles that you produce is much less. So you're, I guess, transmitting, you're much less infectious. Right. Um, but there is obviously the biology of the virus, which is kind of coming from the other side. So one of the concerns with the, the Delta variant is that you tend to become infectious earlier and also the amount of viral particles that are created are more, so you're more infectious. Right. So you could understand that if you're vaccinated against it, that'll still be reduced, it'll still be shorter, but that's kind of, I guess, one of the features or the um, the fitness advantages of this new strain, which is allowing it to sort of transmit so fast. So much faster, yeah. So we had a really good question come in, and it's, will the virus be more likely to mutate in vaccinated or unvaccinated people? So I don't, I'm not sure if there's, so I can't cite studies which have like, you know, proven this, but my feeling would be, my, my suspicion would be, it would be more easy to mutate in, a, um, in an unvaccinated person because you've got more virus particles, you've got a longer infection and so forth right. than in a uh, vaccinated person. So my feeling was to be more likely to mutate. Now, it's, it's sort of interesting because one of the places where they find that the virus does mutate within humans, um, one of the, the sources for sort of new variants, is thought to be in sort of immunocompromised patients. So these are patients which are um, often have their immune system is compromised because they might be undergoing sort of cancer treatment or have cancer or undergoing autoimmune um, treatment. And what it means is they become infected with the virus, but their immune system isn't strong enough to get rid of the virus but it is strong enough to kind of almost exert a selective pressure on the virus. To so kind of keep it at bay. Yeah, so it kind of keeps it there. It doesn't, they don't remove the virus. They kind of keep it there, but they are still fighting it. And what it means is it almost gives the virus an opportunity within um, these sort of individuals to actually almost like mutate and evolve in response to that um, sort of constant not too strong immune attack. Um, and right. so what we tend to see is in, in sort of immunocompromised patients who have contracted the virus, because they've had a really long, they've been infectious for a very long time. So, you know, like we mentioned before, you know, the typical infect, infectious course is about sort of eight to 10 days, whereas this can be weeks, months, um, right. which they're sort of uh, infected for. Um, and so the virus can actually start to accumulate not just one or two mutations, but actually start to accumulate many mutations as well. And so the, um, I think the original alpha variant, which um, you might have ca- came out, I think in about sort of uh, January, February time, that was thought because of the sheer number of mutations that had, had occurred compared to the circulating wild type. I think there was sort of like 18 mu- new mutations mm. within one genome. 
because there were so many different mutations, it was thought that it kind of derived from a um, sort of an immunocompromised individual. So there is that like patient zero when it comes to a different strain. Well, yeah, I mean, in a sense, there's patient zero at the beginning as well. Of course. So in all yeah. the strains, in all the these, strains. Are, these are these individual events, which, yeah, it, it can be that one one outbreak, and that's essentially where it starts. Right, certainly. and it could be that one person that kind of was incubating this virus for an extended period of time, and then it mutated, and then they spread it. Wow. Yeah. And and so it's not known. So the Delta, it's not known where it came from because, of it. you know, with the transmission, it's um, you know, it's it's sort of origins are pretty poorly understood, um, but this is just one sort of I guess um, aspect of sort of concern in terms of like uh, the ongoing evolution of the virus. So then, with people that are immunocompromised, firstly, is it safe for them to get vaccinated? Is that what would be recommended? And secondly, if they were vaccinated, would that prevent this from happening? Yeah, I mean, look, that's a really good question. The the reality is so. Um, I mean, like there are so many causes of um, being immunocompromised. So in terms of autoimmune disorders, cancer and so forth, I mean, and, and so I think in that sort of a situation, if you're in a situation where you've got a, um, a existing health issue, so also in terms of blood pressure, heart problems and so forth, um, it's not it, because it's so complicated. That's something where you probably need to sort of discuss that with your doctor before getting vaccinated. So there's not, I guess, because of, there's so many complicated causes, you could be, it could be um, not a problem, but there might be other scenarios where it might be inadvisable as well. For sure. For sure. And yeah, I'd imagine there's so many different cases and, and this might be related to immune or not at all. But if you have a history of blood clotting or microclots, is that something that these people should still get the vaccination or is that like a, case dependent as well. Yeah, I mean, certainly, again, it's definitely something you want to discuss with your doctor um, because your specific cause or case of um, blood clotting might be for a specific reason, which might be very relevant or entirely irrelevant. So it, it really depends on an individual basis. One of the things with, because the, um, with the cases of the, I guess, the blood clotting, and this is in, with respect to the um, AstraZeneca vaccine, it is very rare. So, and because it's sort of so rare, it is pretty poorly understood. Um, it's thought that what seems to happen in these particular cases is the, um, uh, the immune response to the vaccine, essentially it's, um, attacking these platelet factors and right. essentially initiating this, um, this blood clotting phenomenon. But like I said, because it does happen very rarely. So I think, you know, if, if you're taking the UK, I think there's been about 80 people in about 30 million cases. So because it has happened, right. it's pretty poorly understood what are the factors and so forth. But again, I mean, um, in this case, I would just I would discuss it with your with a doctor, um, sure. your particular case, and then get get advice based on that. Yeah, definitely. Okay, now circling back to mRNA vaccines, how long have they actually been around, or how long have they been studied? What's kind of the history, if you know? Off the mRNA. Yeah, vaccine. I mean, they do have an interesting history. They've been around for about, I'd say, like 10 to 15 years in mm -hmm. terms of research. Um, and so there's been a fair bit of research on them. Um, but they're sort of, I guess, their potential had never really been tested because um, they were quite a sort of a novel approach. So um, what happened is um, when, it, when, it, when the, there's a couple of companies and a couple of research labs that had really developed the technology, and the mRNA vaccines is sort of just one um, application of it. But essentially, when the um, sort of the pandemic started in those early stages, um, these the mRNA vaccines 
they were able to be sort of set up and developed really quickly, um, but it was really a bit of an unknown about how effective they were because they'd never been, they'd never undergone large-scale clinical trials. So it was really um, poorly understood, you know, whether they would work and how well they would work. Um, and so with the clinical trials, because they, because the speed in which they can be developed, they're certainly some of the leading um, vaccine candidates. And to be honest, the safety profile um, and the effectiveness of them has been shown to be really, really quite impressive. Mm. Um, and so certainly there's been a huge amount of attention and investment in them. And I, I suspect over the sort of the next 10 to 20 years, you'll start to see a couple of other vaccine types be converted to them. I think you'll also be able to see that they'll start to be used in other, other they'll start to move their way into other therapies as well. Um, yeah. So things like gene therapy, um, cancer vaccines, they can be used for those sorts of approaches as well. Um, so I think, you know, and, and this is kind of the first time they were being tested. The mRNA vaccines, I mean, the kind of, I guess, the origin of them or the, the idea about this sort of this RNA-based therapy actually goes back to a um, Hungarian scientist, Kati Kariko, who at the University of Pennsylvania, as her sort of postdoctoral research project, she was just really fascinated by this idea of actually like essentially transfecting the mRNA, putting the mRNA into the cells and using them to express the proteins and use them as a vaccine. Um, and to be honest, she did. Like, I, you go back and read her papers now, you know, you can kind of see this yeah. progression of the development of the mRNA technology. And there was a really, like, she didn't receive a lot of attention, um, despite the sort of, I guess, the promise. When you look back and you sort of see the experiments and you sort of see the promise and where the technology's come now, mm. it's quite impressive. But she, she really struggled to get sort of grant applications um, and attention at the time. <laughs> um, but she developed this technology, and then she essentially met the um, the CEO of the BioNTech, the German company, and they put together this program. And in terms of like a sort of a technology pro, um, platform, and they had been trying to develop it for influenza. Um, but then when the um, when the coronavirus pandemic hit, they thought you know we can our platform could really you know could really work really well here, and so they immediately put all their sort of resources, all their focus, they transferred it to um, uh, the building an mRNA vaccine for coronavirus. Mm. And they, they licensed with Pfizer. And then, you know, two years later, there, you know, it's, I think there's been like about, in terms of, in total, there's been about 3 billion vaccine doses. Wow. Um, the Pfizer version of that. I don't know what the Pfizer fraction of that is, but, you know, they're being globally sent around the world now. Oh, that's an incredible story. One of the most effective and leading one. Yeah, she's a, it's, it's a pretty impressive. I think it's a little bit one of those stories of like, you know, the amount of work um, and that sort of dedication and this vision in terms of the scientific project and, you know, the, the amount of sort of like the, the, the effort and the hard work that went into it to build it up and convince people and then to just see it sort of be so the impact of it being so spectacular and global. Quite an impressive story. And quite a rare event for that to happen in the first place, you know. Exactly as well. Yeah. Like and had a, a pandemic those... not happened, maybe it would have never been able to be scaled like that. Exactly. And it was because there was all these other, like, um, there's all these, always other considerations, you know, like, um, you know, in terms of getting funding or investment or getting attention or getting support for it, you know, these kind of serendipitous things. And I'm, mm. you know, I can imagine that, you know, without that sort of support, um, it would have been really, it's really difficult to get these sort of research programs or these research ideas off the head. But it is also an, it is also an indication as well, what can start out as quite a sort of a small idea 
can actually sort of change the pathway of our, it become a central part of our response to the pandemic. Yeah, uh, it's incredible, honestly. Okay, so we're undergoing all the vaccinations, especially in Australia, like they've really ramped up the vaccines like crazy. Um, but what do you see for the future of the virus? How we're going to live with the virus? Is it something that we're always going to live with or not? Yeah, I mean, look, it's a difficult question because, I mean, I think if, if this pandemic, trying to make predictions in this pandemic, um, <laughs> which has, you know, been a very um, sort of, I guess, a bit of a roller coaster ride for all of us, it's always very difficult. Um, but I mean, in terms of, there's a couple of, there's a couple of different sort of aspects to the, um, to your question in terms of, and it, it is a bit like how we also respond to it. I mean, I think when it comes to the vaccination side of things, you know, obviously getting that sort of essentially as much of the population like that really large part of the population vaccinated will have a huge impact in terms of both um, minimising the impact, the health impact, so the hospitalisation, and also one of the other things is this idea of, um, they call it like herd immunity. The idea is once, you know, a large part of the population has immune protection um, to the virus, it means it's less difficult, it's more difficult for it to be transmitted, to be passed around and so forth. Um, and so the hope is that, you know, with those, uh, with a, sort of a widespread uh, vaccination, that'll start to sort of, I guess, minimise the impact and minimise the transmission of the virus. Um, having said that, you can also see um, that the virus is not a, it's not a fixed thing. It is changing, it's evolving. Um, and there's certainly potential. We've seen like the Delta variant, how that's evolved to make it more transmissible. Um, in, in, you know, it's, it's changed the way it kind of works. There is a, definitely the potential for new variants that can actually, what they call it, they call it vaccine escape. And what that means is new variants that can um, sort of, I guess, escape the vaccines and can be sort of, I guess, not detected by uh, vaccinated people. They, don't, they no longer have that same level of immune protection or immune response. Right. Like I said, you probably appreciate now, it's really just a, a black and white sort of thing. Uh, you know, if or, like a yes or no, Typically, what will happen is a vaccinated person will still have some response, but that response will just be, I guess, of a, a less strength and less duration. Yes. Um, so I think that there is that potential for the vaccine, for the virus itself to change. Um, I mean, I think if you look at sort of our previous, um, previous history, so previous pandemics, we do have um, some pretty impressive precedents where like things like smallpox and polio whereby getting sufficient enough people vaccinated, we have almost like eradicated these diseases. Um, and so, you know, this goal of like, can it be eradicated now? I mean, every disease has its own, or they often have their own like different aspects, their own different features to them. One of the things is coronavirus is sort of a respiratory disease. So it does transmit quite a lot. Um, I mean, before SARS-CoV-2, there's actually quite a few other coronaviruses that are in circulation. Mm -hmm. The reality is, you, you're not, you don't really, no one really paid much attention to them before because it was just like getting a common cold. And, That's right. You, know, you got sick for a while, you got better and you moved on. Um, it wasn't sort of, I guess, um, uh, it didn't have the same danger. Um, there is a thought, uh, the, the sort of the expectation in the very, very long term is that the coronavirus will probably ultimately, or the SARS-CoV-2 will ultimately end up like that, like a seasonal um, respiratory um, uh, um, virus similar to flu where you know in the in the winter months people tend to catch it but it doesn't have the same sort of impact in terms of mortality and health but we probably do have a, a while before we get there like the speed in which we get there is still yes. a little bit um sort of unknown um 
Yeah, so it's a, it, there is that idea. I mean, you sort of also see maybe a similar situation is things like the influenza, how we mm -hmm. see the influenza now. I mean, each year we essentially get a, a new vaccines made. We get new variants each year and they sort of have this seasonal spread throughout the world. Um, see, I think people any... just think, I think it's good that you're saying that because I think a lot of people have this idea that there's just this one vaccination for the flu, influenza, and that's it. But like you're saying now, they're coming up with new ones all the time because there's probably new strains of influenza as well, but no one really talks about it. And it just, you know, that one's also mutating just like yeah. COVID-19 is. So that's the thing. So, so influenza mutates a lot faster. It's genome. It, it actually rearranges itself um, in a way wow. that COVID doesn't. Um, SARS-CoV-2, it actually mutates for a virus. It's actually quite sophisticated. It's quite a large genome. And for it to have a large genome, it has to be quite careful. Like it has to have a correct its errors. So when it's basically producing itself, it has to be quite careful. So it has an error correction, which is good in terms of it makes the genome from the virus's perspective, at least I should say it's good. It, you know, it produces the right copies all the time, but it means it slows down its evolution or it's, it slows down the mutations. So it right. a, it, it's not a very fast evolving virus, but as you can see, it does evolve. Like that's the um, that's the reality. But uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, I I do see like in the long term, it may be pro pro progressing to a situation like that where possibly you have booster shots, possibly you have seasonal booster shots, um, mm -hmm. to provide that additional protection. Yeah, yeah. So it might eventually, hopefully, be something literally just like the flu, where you go in, get your flu jab once a year, once every two years, and then that's kind of. <laughs> exactly. Amazing. That's, that's essentially the, um, I mean, I think at this stage, that's the sort of, I guess, the anticipated sort of, I guess, the long term. Um, it's kind of, unfortunately, it does seem like it's kind of unfortunately joined that pantheon of sort of uh, viruses circulating within the human population. So, you know, we were, we try to like get them down, but this has kind of gone the other way. Um, there is another kind of interesting aspect of it is, I mean, one of the things about coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 is that it can also be contracted by animal populations. So yeah. domestic animals, but also wild populations as well. Um, there's quite a few animals that are, um, can be infected. And what they can do as well is they can also form. So if you can imagine, if, even in an ideal scenario where we could sort of vaccinate the, um, the world's population to try and stop it, it could also reside within animal populations as well. Um, and so that means it can sort of jump this zoonotic transfer, we call it, where it goes back and forth. So it essentially means like using vaccination might be quite difficult in terms yes, of sort of eradicating. Because of, yeah, aspect. yeah. So it might not be fully eradicated, but do you think we'll be able to just live with it eventually the way we do influenza, where of course it might hit some people, a few people quite badly, but in general, it's just something that we'd live with. I mean, I, yeah, I think, I mean, I think unfortunately that is going to be the, the ultimate um, end game. Well, it, it, it will be something which we're going to have to live with in terms of, um, you know, our own health, our own sort of, I guess, public health system, um, in terms of uh, getting vaccinated at an early age, these sorts of things. I, d I do think it is something we're going to have to l learn to live with. Um, I guess it's partly trying to, I guess at this stage, what, what we're really trying to do is minimise the impact, minimise the, um, the sort of the impact on our health to get to that end point. Um, yeah. You know, minimise the people that pass away from it and so forth. Yeah, and I think another thing that's, I guess, at the moment so stressful, at least in Australia, because we're still waiting to, like, bump up those vaccinations, is we're trying to limit the amount of people in hospital, like the load on 
the hospitals and all of that. So you still have space for everyone who's not just there for, you know, COVID, but for other reasons as well. So with vaccinations, obviously the rate of people in hospitals is substantially lower, I would imagine. Yeah, hugely so. And I mean, that's where the vaccines are still really effective. Yeah. Um, you know, Delta variant, like all the different variants, all the rest, but the vaccines are really effective against getting, like, protecting people so they don't get hospitalised, so they don't um, uh, pass away from the um, from the coronavirus. Um, yeah. So that's where we want to get to is, you know, in, in, in sort of a managed, in a, in a way similar to influenza where it's sort of an endemic disease. Yeah, that's right, because I think a lot of people who... I don't know, like anti-vaxxers or whatever, they'll say, oh, you can still get COVID, you can still transmit it. But I think the main thing to focus on is, yeah, the fact that you don't incubate it for as long and it's not as severe if you do get it. That's the point of it. Exactly. It, the thing is, it's like I said, at the end of the day, your immune system knows how to fight it from the beginning. Yes. So, you know, it's that, it's that when you get... Um, it's when you get infected that first time and your immune system doesn't know how to respond that's when you're, you've got the biggest danger. You know, that's when you're really under a lot of danger in terms mm. of how you're immune, how you're going to, your body's going to respond, how it's going to start um, responding to the, the virus. And the, the virus is almost going to have a bit of a, a free run for a couple of days. Um, and so if you've been vaccinated, it's essentially you're trained, you're, your body's already trained. So when you do come across that virus for the first time, it'll know what to do. It'll know how to recognize it. It'll initiate the immune response immediately and therefore your ability to fight it off will be much, much more effective. One thing that I really wanted to cover is you don't live in Australia, you live in Mexico City. So I'd love to hear your perspective from someone that's living in another country, how it's how it's going over there versus what you're seeing in Australia. And yeah, any comments on that? Um, yeah, I mean, look, it's it's a really interesting one. And it, has, it does seem like it's been a very different experience, I must say. So I think, um, so my... I guess my sort of hot take would be, you know, when the sort of the pandemic in, was it like uh, in February, March, 2020, when it first hit here in Mexico City, um, we were in a lockdown for, I'd say at least sort of seven, eight months to begin with. Um, oh, and wow. so it, it was a very long, yeah, it was a very sort of long-term lockdown. And obviously there was a huge amount of uncertainty at that stage um, in terms of, you know, the the impact of the coronavirus, like, the, you know, the these sorts of, um, there was really, we didn't really know what was happening. The neighborhood went really quiet. Um, and it was a really, yeah, it was a really strange experience. Um, and I think in some ways, so I was in Mexico for those sort of like those six months. Um, I have a young family here as, like with me as well. So we did like sort mm. of homeschooling and kind of, I guess, learn to cope. And I think like many people in this world, I mean, definitely many sort of parents, it was a pretty sort of interesting time where, you know, everything in a sense kind of like switched off a little bit. Um, and, you know, we sort of all like um, came together and, um, you know, everything was really, was closed for that, such a huge amount of time. I remember the, I actually remember because I have like sort of my young daughters and um, yeah. I do remember the first time because we used to, we live in like a really cool part of Mexico City. It's called like Coyacan. So it's actually like the sort Amazing. of Amazing. Yeah, it's this really, it's sort of the old, this old sort of colonial section of, um, um, of Mexico City. So I think it's like where the Frida Kahlo, um, Octavia Paz, um, Pablo Neruda, all these sort of literary figures <sighs> where they lived. So it had this, it's, it's got this beautiful sort of Spanish colonial architecture and the, sort of the, the haciendas from the conquistadors. And so mm. me and I do remember me and my daughter, we used to sort of like, you know, put our, like, because we'd be around, we'd put our masks on and essentially just 
explore the neighborhood and just walk around the neighborhood, which was empty. Um, and we used wow. to do it like day in, day out and just like get to explore this, um, this world. And it was, it was quite a surreal feeling. Um, but then, so since then I have been back to Australia, um, for like our work and yeah, mm. it did feel like quite a, a, quite a different, um, situation. I mean, certainly in Mexico, people are really pretty aware in terms of things like face masks. People are very yes. sort of careful, um, both at the beginning and still now, like people are really pretty, um, pretty careful about the, um, they sort of appreciate the impact that it's had. Um, I do yeah. know, like, I think also, I guess the impact has also been a bit more sort of visceral. Like when I was sort of in, in Australia, you know, you sort of re, you sort of see a lot in the news, um, and you sort of see the impact, but I think in, in Mexico, you know, there's a lot more sort of like personal connections. Like, you know, I know quite a few friends and family who have um, mm. had coronavirus people who have also become really sick from coronavirus and some friends who have actually passed away as well. So I think that kind oh, of, sorry. Yeah. you kind of, um, I think there's that, that, that connection is quite visceral. Whereas in, um, in Australia, you know, it's, it's, it's almost through the, the news and the media, but I would also feel that one of the things which when I was, um, last in Australia, it also felt that almost, um, in, I don't know how to say in, in Mexico, it just feel like, um, people have almost like the sort of that stoicism and people have started to learn to how to cope with it and deal with it. And yes. so when the vaccines became available, you know, there's certainly, there's definitely no, um, there was no sort of reluctance. There was a huge amount of uptake because people kind of realized how um, important that was to kind of returning to normalcy. Um, but I also think as well, like, you know, that kind of, in terms of the, I feel like now the, the society and the community, um, in terms of like businesses being open and so forth, things are, it's, it's, it's sort of like this new normal. So everyone's very sort of aware of it. There's a lot of sort of like that public health, um, and safety. Yeah. But at the same time, it does feel like, um, there's a sort of, I guess, a, a bit of an evolution and for lack of a better world, it feels like the community has sort of come to terms with it, um, in a way that I feel like Australia maybe hasn't yet. Um, because yeah. in Australia, I feel that it's sort of almost, the impact of it is kind of occurring now. Um, yeah. And it almost feels like what sort of Mexico went through um, eight months ago, Australia is starting to sort of um, go through at the moment. And I think, I mean, this is kind of my, I guess I'm in Mexico at the moment. So this is a little bit my impressions from seeing the media in both places, mm. but also my mm -hmm. um, personal, but it, it does feel like there's a bit of a conversation happening now in Australia about the, the reality of, um, SARS-CoV-2, the, um, the sort of, I guess, this understanding that potentially, you know, living with it and sort of moving on yes. and sort of, I guess, dealing with it is something which society, um, the community has to do. And I think in some senses, because Australia so, so, sort of did such a good job of like sort of um, keeping that, uh, managing it before now, um, it's, it's done a really good job, but it, it feels like some of those questions which have been sort of, um, already discussed and addressed in Mexico because you didn't have that opportunity to control it in the yes. same way that Australia did. Cause you know, it's just a, it's, a, it's so much more, it's such a bigger place and so much integrated with the States and so forth, but it feels like that same conversation, which happened last year is now happening in, um, in yeah. Australia. Um, and, and I it, think we were almost in like, I wouldn't say denial, but we just didn't even think too much about it because we were able to keep it at zero cases or close to, because we're really just this, island you know other yeah. countries didn't have that luxury but they went through now even
Like everyone, even the government, they're all talking about we just have to learn how to live with it. To try and get cases to zero is just now an impossible task. We've just got to pump out these vaccinations and learn to live with it. Yeah, well, I mean, there's two things to say. I mean, yeah, it's like unless you want to live like an island for, you know, that was the benefit for the last year. Unless you want to stay as an island, that's something. I do feel as well, like you've just mentioned as well, like, you know, before we wanted to keep it to COVID zero, whereas now it's, but the reality was, I don't think there was ever an opportunity to have it as COVID zero, if that no. makes sense. I feel that that was well, um, possibly not at all. It, it was possible to delay it, but I think the idea that it could remain like that, I think in the long run, was um, uh, um, was it, it is very unlikely. Um, yeah, so I, especially with borders, and you know, we want to be connected with the world, so it's just not viable. Yeah, and well, one of the things I would also feel as well is because in Australia, it, because it is um, like the amount of media attention and focus on it is obviously massive. And I do feel mm. in some cases there's also been like a little bit, it's almost like stigmatised a little bit as well. You know, I do remember yes. like it, it, it sort of, but I do remember, you know, at the beginning uh, a, a COVID case was on the front page of the news and so forth because yeah. it was like really, um, whereas to give you an example, in Mexico, you know, it's like, um, you know, when they did the testing here, you know, we're talking like there's tens of thousands of cases. You don't have that same, I guess, that same stigmatization yes. associated with it because it has become um, part of it. And I, you know, I think there's, there's definitely different sides to this conversation. Um, you know, the sort of the strategy you take, you have to balance this idea between um, sort of the community and society and coming to terms with this pretty, like one of the most disruptive events of the century. Um, sort of coming mm. to terms with it. But at the same time, also, I can understand, like, mitigating the health impact as well. And, you know, both those extremes, it's almost like you're trying to sort of, uh, I don't know, using, I guess, a, a bit of a, a Buddhist approach, but really take that middle road, yeah. which, you know, sort of, li- like, sort of um, balances those two extremes. And I think... That's right. Think That's right. Trying to get to that at the moment, but, yeah. Yeah, we're trying... We're finding that balance... Now, some states have to find it faster than I'm in New South Wales, and I think New South Wales is trying to is probably getting there faster than other states just because our case numbers are so high right now, and we yeah. now have accessibility to the vaccine, whereas we didn't have that last year. No, no one really did, you know, a year ago. And now that yeah. we do have the alternative of having a vaccinated population or a lockdown, that's why they're now trying to say, okay, no matter what, we're already going to start to lift some restrictions to vaccinated people because this whole lockdown thing when there's a vaccine available is just not realistic and people are just at least mental health is just going downhill and we just need to get out of this lockdown yeah soon, no you know? it's it's super tough like the lockdown so we did like we did for set that seven months yeah how did you was, do, yeah how yeah i mean look it's been like i've never had an experience like it um and i do feel mm. like this sort of the coronavirus pandemic has probably been one of the most disruptive events since like the second world war in terms of yeah. the, the massive disruption it's had um but you know we it, it yeah it was uh those sort of those seven months and sort of dealing with it and that sort of uncertainty of going on has been has been really tough um and but i do feel you know with with in terms of sort of sydney you know it does feel one of the things which i've found I do feel is quite helpful um, is when there's a, a sort of a, a bit of a timetable or there's goals or there's a like it feels like there's a plan ahead because often it's the yes. uncertainty and I think this is both from both a business perspective but also from a personal perspective I know when we had sort of a goal you know when when they would say look once it gets to this particular level uh, we'll lift the restrictions 
it mm. did feel like you know there was an actually something you could work around whereas when you had that um sort of uncertainty i remember that was totally Totally. That's what's, I think, really driven so many people now, at least in Sydney. I don't know about the rest of New South Wales, but at least in Sydney, they're just going crazy getting these vaccinations because they're giving us these incentives. If it wasn't for the incentives, I don't think it would be going this quickly. No, I mean, that's 100% right. I mean, it did feel like one of the other things. So I was back in Australia. Um, so I left in July. Um, and that's when the vaccine uptake was quite you know, pretty sluggish. Um, there wasn't Yo, a huge was like woeful. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and that was very different to here where it was, you know, it really got treated like, um, you know, it was, uh, I guess, the um, the benefit of it or the, the sort of the saving aspects of it were really appreciated. And so people, people saw it as like their ticket out of. Exactly. Yeah. So the, to, to sort of a um, trying to get back to some some level of normalcy and you know, the, one of the other things which was really tough here as well was I do feel like in, um, so in Mexico City, there's a huge um, sort of informal economy, you know, there's, um, mm. so a lot of, um, I think about 60% of the economy is informal. So, you know, at the markets, um, you right. know, at the stands, you know, like the, the sort of the street vendors, these sorts of things. Mm. And so in those sorts of cases, you know, when no one's going out and there's nothing on, there's no, there was no sort of additional support. There's no um, sort of, I guess, um, government support that sort of situation as well, and so the impact yeah, that's was awful. Really quite massive. Um, yeah, there was really interesting. There were some pretty interesting things as well. There were some pretty funny things I did notice. I remember, like the park near where we are, it got closed, um, but the um, the kids' playground got turned into like this sort of clandestine um, gym where like guys <laughs> in the neighbourhood would almost like break into the kids' playground and they'd like made <laughs> made like weights and stuff from yeah. like. Um, concrete blocks and so forth. So That's that, so a, you know, funny. I love like, that. Yeah. And we had, I remember here, we had, um, there was one cafe which stayed open, right? And it became like a, essentially the, your um, routine in the morning for us in the morning. Yeah. Like the whole family would get up and would say, look, we need to go get a coffee and a, a pan yes. dulce, like some sweet bread. Oh, yum, yum. <laughs> sit in the square um, by ourselves with the dog. And it was kind of a, I guess a routine that kind of bound us together for like seven months. Definitely. And it's one of those yeah. things like it's, um, it, you know, it's obviously been very tough, but if there was a silver client, like a lining to the cloud, like sort of, I guess, spending that time together as a family was pretty, um, yes. pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. I can imagine. And it has, it has actually gotten me closer to people that I actually don't even live close to weirdly. Like I could be, doing zoom chats with people overseas and only now am i doing it you know even though i don't live you know what i mean it's just this really weird thing it's it's made you want to connect i think you know yeah. having this lockdown so there has been some you know some yeah, good that, that's come out of it yeah there's certainly like some silver findings i mean i also i mean me personally as well it does make you you know life is moving so fast with work and all these things going on and it was this moment where you essentially had to stop and you know like go back to basics yeah. and just think about like your your world became just a lot smaller um and in Definitely. some ways that was quite good i mean at least for me personally because it really did make me sort of like look at priorities and look at my life and kind of see like enjoy i guess take take time to enjoy and be gratitude grateful for the things yeah you yeah, no, I agree. So thank you, Tim, so much. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and answering all the listener questions. That has been incredible. And I'm sure that we'll definitely have you back on for because that was super informative. I loved it. 
Yeah, thank you very much, Alexis, for the opportunity to chat. Guys, thank you for tuning in to today's interview with Tim. He's obviously so knowledgeable. I loved that conversation with him. I learned so much and hopefully you guys did as well. If you have any more questions that you would like to ask Tim or any other scientist, because I'm going to try and get more different you know, experts in different fields on, but in particular questions for Tim, please head over to the Facebook group, uh, Do You Fucking Mind with Alexis Fernandez, and just throw those questions in. Maybe we can start a feed of questions and maybe I can get Tim on again to chat and answer more of your questions. So thank you again for tuning in. Really appreciate you guys. Keep listening and sharing to all your friends and family. And as always, be kind to yourselves, be kind to your brains. Don't take shit from anyone and especially don't take shit from yourself. Danke.